Hello, and welcome to this episode of Triggered and True, featuring renowned emotional health consultant, Laura Duncan. Thank you for being here, and thank you for investing the time to learn how to take care of your soul. If this podcast sparks any questions, feel free to submit a question by going to triggeredandtrue.com, scrolling to the bottom of the page, and clicking ask. If you would like to learn more about Laura Duncan, we encourage you to follow Laura on Instagram and Facebook. Also, a great resource for you to consider is the Compassion Method Master Course. This course is a deep dive into Laura's life work, the Compassion Method. The Compassion Method is a process that empowers you to learn to see and comfort your internal pain and to discover your true self, your true self, that beautiful, wonderful part of you that has been there all along, but has simply been covered up. To obtain the Master Course, go to CompassionMethod.net and as a podcast listener, you qualify for a $50 discount that can be obtained by typing in the coupon code PODCAST50. Again, that's CompassionMethod.net, coupon code PODCAST50. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome everybody to this edition of Triggered and True. I believe this is our 16th podcast episode, so thank you for joining us with myself, Brian Freise, and with Miss Laura Duncan. Hello, Laura. Hi. Hi, Brian. Hi, everyone. Well, thank you all for joining us. And today is a day that has me a little bit nervous because I'm going to be sharing my story and how I got connected to Laura Duncan and the Compassion Method. So as we've gone along, there's been times I've shared a little bit of my experience, but today I'll be sharing it in much greater depth than I have uh, to this point. So to start off, I actually wrote out the introduction. I was just doing some writing and writing helps me organize my thoughts sometimes. And I felt that what I wrote kind of was a really good start and it was very helpful for me to write it. So I'm going to start off by reading that. And then Laura is going to kind of share her viewpoints and expand on some of the things that that I share. I truly believe that my story is also your story and that what I'm going to share is part of our shared human experience. Ecclesiastes 1.9 states, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. While the circumstances and situations of my story are unique, and even special to me, the overarching theme is not. I will be sharing things we all go through, but most of us never talk about. In my case, and I don't think I'm alone in this, my silence was due to ignorance. I simply did not know what I did not know. There are certain things that every human being who has ever been or ever will be will experience. Some of these things are absolutely wonderful, like joy, laughter, connection, the feeling of being known, and peace, to name just a few. But there is also the inescapable reality that we will also all experience pain. In my mind, pain was something physical. However, when I had what I have come to call my great awakening, what others might call a nervous breakdown, but I choose great awakening. I think that sounds better. And it actually describes it better. Anyway, my great awakening, I learned that my pain did not have to have a physical source. 
and that in this case, it did not. This is what made it so confounding. Prior to this experience, the greatest pain I had ever endured was at the hands of a kidney stone. Within minutes, a quick internet search by my wife revealed the likely cause of my sudden symptoms that had me on all fours in our bathroom in a tremendous amount of agony. Knowing what was going on gave me a degree of solace, even though that was hard to recognize in the moment. In the case of my great awakening, the pain was coming from my soul, my inner world, or from my heart in a metaphoric sense. I was so unaware and disconnected from my inner world that when I attempted to describe what was happening to me, I did not even use the word pain or hurt. I was obviously hurting, but since I did not know what was hurting, I could not even acknowledge that I was hurting. I'm going to read that again. Mm -hmm, That was good. I was obviously hurting, but since I did not know what was hurting, I could not even acknowledge that I was hurting. Does that make any sense, Laura? It does make a lot of sense. Yeah, you don't, if you don't know the name for it because you have not learned what was going on inside of you, then you don't know how to identify it. Yeah, I had absolutely no grid for emotional pain. And we'll get into more of that. So needless to say, in order for the healing process to begin, my high degree of disconnect with my inner world was going to need to change. So I'm sharing my story for two reasons. First of all, it's for me. Processing it helps me heal, helps me understand, helps me discover. It challenges me to go deeper and to feel deeper. I spent 43 years of my life numbing my emotions, numbing my ability to feel, not allowing myself to feel because I had no concept for how to process uncomfortable and painful emotions. I thought these emotions were bad and that I just shouldn't be having them. So I suppressed and ignored them. Unfortunately, the very circuits in our brain that painful emotions travel on are also the circuits that positive emotions like peace and joy travel on. You cannot selectively numb emotions. Numb one and you numb them all. This numbing prevents us from experiencing so much of this wonderful gift called life and also from discovering who we truly are. The uncomforted pain in our inner world blocks and distorts our view of ourselves. Most of us struggle with who we see in the mirror, and this is tragic. I want to experience more. I want to discover more. I want to love more. And sharing my story helps me do that. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity. And thank you, Laura, for allowing me the opportunity. Yeah. So secondly, secondly, I am sharing for you, our listeners. It is my hope that I can help give you eyes to see, to see your own story. As mentioned, I did not know what I did not know. It is my hope and prayer that you can learn from what I share and that my experience will help to launch you on your own healing journey, that you too can have your own great awakening, a hopefully less traumatic one. And finally, I'm not sharing any of this as one who has arrived or as one who has it all figured out. 
The wonderful thing about this process is that you never do arrive, so to speak, as we will be forever learning, growing, and discovering. While it is true that I'm light years away from where I was the day I first stepped into Laura's office, I still feel like I'm stumbling and bumbling through this process a lot of the time. Kind of like a bull in a china shop making a horribly terrific mess. <laughs> but here I stand at 46 years of age with a profound sense that I'm now just learning how to live. That is the introduction for today's podcast. Yep, just dive right in. Yeah. yeah. I Anything? think in sharing how you were saying, um, just even in the beginning, how, you know, it's you a little nervous today, a little bit, you know, feeling, feeling it because it's such a sensitive, tender story. Um, but I think that such a good opportunity to recognize the compassion method process allows you to share your story because you can even take care of yourself and be able to bring compassion to your heart and comfort, even right now as you're sharing your story. And I love that because sometimes when we share a story, even though it can bring a lot of benefit to um, those around us, a lot of times we kind of re-traumatize ourselves. We hurt ourselves in the process of sharing our story. And even as you're sharing right now, you can bring compassion. You can allow yourself to feel comforted in the vulnerable places that you're going to share. Yeah. And I think one of the things you talked about with um, the sharing, you talked about how like a little kid when they're experiencing something traumatic, they will explain it. They'll tell the story over and over and over again because they're trying to help themselves understand. Yeah, exactly. And there's an element of that that happens with this. But you're right. It does It does re-traumatize. And we're also going to talk about why that's a good thing. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> and that's why I kind of wanted to open in saying that, that yes, this is going to be difficult for you to share in some ways, but you can be right there with yourself all along the way. And, Absolutely. and you don't have to do this alone, even though we're on the podcast together and you're sharing with, you know, everyone that's listening right now, you're not alone in it. You don't yeah. have to um, have that feeling of you have to even get through this story by yourself, but you're with yourself. We're with you and everyone's here to be with you in it. That's why we're listening. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, thank you everyone for being with me. <laughs> So how I landed in Laura's office and the kind of the little bit of the backstory and the great awakening. So I was living in Redding, California with my family where Laura lives, and we were attending ministry school there. The first year of the ministry school, my wife and I attended together. And the second year, the plan was that I was going to take care of the family, take care of our family business, and try to learn to apply some of the things I learned in the first year. And that's, that's what the agenda was. So this actually, the great awakening happened during our second year living there. And I had is in November of 2018, I had just uh, returned back to Reading from a business trip back in Illinois. I got back on a Saturday night and I woke up on a Sunday morning in the midst of a panic attack, unlike anything I had ever experienced before. It's so strange because it was a, such a beautiful day. The sun was shining. It was just a beautiful day. But yet I had this overwhelming fear, scared, just, I don't know. It was really weird. And I remember just laying in bed, looking around like I was almost paralyzed. So I woke my wife up and tried to explain to her what was going on and She has had a panic attack before on a few occasions, and she was able to 
quickly deduced that's what was happening to me. And we did what we knew to do. We prayed, we rebuked devils. She comforted me as, as best she could, as best she knew how. And, and I just remember that I, I, a few different times I'd find a sense of normalcy, but it seems like it wouldn't last very long. So this, this thing that happened that Sunday morning, it, it definitely didn't just go away. It, it just kind of ebbed and flowed. And um, there was a whole lot of just scrambling, trying to figure out what the heck was going on. So Thursday of that week was actually Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving of 2018, I got up early uh, again because I wasn't able to sleep. And I decided to go for a walk. And on the walk, I decided to listen to a podcast from a uh, pastor that someone that I knew very well and someone that uh, spoke with the school. I listened to him lots of times before. And this podcast had actually come recommended because they felt it spoke to some of what I was going through. So I think my wife even recommended it to me. And I remember going on that walk and having a very significant check in my spirit about, are you sure you want to listen to this? And I was like, well, that's crazy. Of course, why wouldn't I? You know, I've listened to this pastor dozens and dozens of times before, came recommended. So I just overrode that hesitation and went ahead and listened to it. And I don't remember what it was all about, but the gist of it was about learning to control your thought life and you know, lots of biblical examples of that. And I remember, uh, oh, actually, as we got towards the end of it, I, I recognized really quickly why I had that hesitation in my spirit about listening. So at the end of it, the, the pastor issued as I received it now, this isn't exactly, this doesn't exactly mean this is what he did, but this is how I received it. I received it as a warning, as a warning that if I don't get my thought life in order, the enemy, the devil is going to take me out. And he went on to describe a situation with uh, uh, a pastor that uh, a pastor from California, where we were living, that had um, recently taken his life. And it wasn't specifically shared the example, but it was inferred. And the second that he went there, my mind kind of flashed to a Facebook picture that I saw of that pastor and uh, his family. And that pastor had been struggling with what I had been struggling with, anxiety, panic attacks. And it got to a point where he eventually committed suicide. And um, whatever level of anxiety that I thought that I had, it, it went up, you know, a hundredfold uh, the second that, that, you know, that landed on me. And I just kept thinking, oh my God, is that what's happening to me? Is is that what's going to end up happening to me? Am I going to not be able to get a hold of this? Is it going to get to the point where that happens? And that thought absolutely just ran me over. And we'll get to in a little bit why that particular thought of suicide was so vulnerable for me, like why I was like almost like a perfect setup. But 
But in that moment, I mean, it literally felt like death was stalking me. And there are absolutely no words that I can use to describe what it felt like during that time period. And, um, you know, as I say, Thanksgiving 2018 wasn't really fun. And, um, and it's frustrated me sometimes of not being able to explain, you know, exactly what it felt like. And one of the things you shared with me, Laura, is that uh, it really, the whole thing about not feeling alone, you shared with me how, you know, God knows, God knows what it felt like. So I'm not completely alone that there is someone else that understands that knows I don't have to try to explain it perfectly or whatever. So that Thanksgiving was rough. Um, you know, it just, it just kind of really kept growing and getting worse. And I, I wasn't able to find any solution. And finally the Sunday after Thanksgiving, it reached a point where I was basically kind of on all fours again in the living room, very similar to the kidney stone <laughs> episode, except I was in a living room this time, not the bathroom. And I finally, it was about midnight. And I remember I just kind of uh, cried out to God and I said, what about medicine? Is it going to come to that, that I actually have to go get medical help? And almost immediately, I felt God say that medicine will be part of your journey. And that was really hard for me to hear. There was a flicker of hope that came with that, like maybe there'd be some help, but it was also really hard to hear because that was so connected to failure to me. Like I should be able to get a hold of myself. I should not need to go get help for this in that way. And an absolute ton of shame was there. And um, so I eventually ended up going to the emergency room and walking in those doors was so hard. Like I stood in the parking lot for a while, like, am I really doing this? Am I really doing this? <laughs> I had built it into this humongous thing when really it's not, but I had built it into something that was absolutely larger than life. And what I, and I expected as I walked in there to face a lot of judgment. I don't know why, but I just expected that it was probably my programming, but I expected to face judgment and just like, Hey, we've got, we've got people that are really sick. And then you're in here. You know, like there's people that are in car accidents. There's people that have terminal illnesses. There's, there's more people with much bigger problems than whatever you think you've got to take care of. That's what I expected to face. But that is not what happened. Instead, um, I was met with compassion. The nurses, doctor, um, they were all very compassionate. There wasn't any judgment. There was um, understanding. And yes, they did give me some medicine. Yes, after some time, it helped. It helped shut down that amygdala and bring me down out of that triggered state and about three hours after I took the medicine, I probably felt the most normal that I would feel for the next year and a half. But the, um, the real compassionate part of what they shared was, um, you know, really encouraging counseling. 
And they're like, there's, they basically said, you know, there is not a medical solution to what you're dealing with. There's a, there's a joint solution, but the medic, the medicine is a helper to help you get to the deeper solution. Those aren't the exact words, but that was, that was what I took. And they gave me tons of resources about counseling and just were adamant that I, that I pursue that. So I did. And the counseling that I sought out at first was, was really more religious oriented and which I was in a religious environment. We were at the school for religious reasons. So I did that. And a lot of it was very well-meaning, but just because of the situation that I was at, it was, it really ended up doing a lot to reinforce shame because I felt like I wasn't performing. I wasn't performing for God, wasn't performing for my family. So it did a lot to reinforce shame. And a lot of it was just kind of like, you know, trying to pray it away, snap your fingers and it would be gone. And I believe in those type of things from a spiritual standpoint, but I also know that sometimes it doesn't work that way. And sometimes it's more of a process. And interestingly, as it relates to anxiety, uh, I've experienced it both ways. Early on in um, our, our, my wife's relationship, we, um, when I first met her, she was living in a town about 40 miles away. I owned a house in this other town and decided to, after six months, six months after I told her I would never, ever move to her town, I was looking for a house to buy in her town. So we did that. We found a house and um, I got a bridge loan. And for a period of time, I owned two homes and I was not in a financial position to own two homes. And I remember standing in the shower one night, just the anxiety of that. Again, you know, prior to this, I would have said I never struggled with anxiety, but looking back, I can recognize that. Oh yeah, actually it's, it's been there. Um, I was just able to manage it differently. But I remember standing in the shower and the weight of that and the anxiety of company of owning these two homes and just the economics of it was just was just really, really pressing down on me. And earlier that week, we had attended church and the pastor was speaking on Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And it says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I'm basically just standing in the shower, just that verse is just going through in my head, and I'm like clinging to it. All of a sudden, it was completely gone. The anxiety was gone. And when I say gone, it was like, you know, if I was a 10, it went to a two, it was gone and it stayed gone. And several days later, uh, someone made an offer on the home and it was kind of a crap offer. And I was like, yeah, whatever. So I, I came down on our offer just a little bit. I mean, I, I still remember the numbers in my head, but just a little bit, I came down and I figured we'd go back and forth a while. Nope. They accepted my counter <laughs> and the house is sold and, and there we go. Now, it'd be kind of neat if it worked that way every time, but in a way, if it did, it would be robbing us. 
because the root of why that anxiety was there to begin with was still there. In that moment, I got the relief. And, and I believe that God gave me what I needed in that moment. But fast forward to the great awakening, all that stuff isn't working. It's not just going away. And I recognize that, well, this one, this one's going to be a process. And I'm, and I'm thankful for that because by it being a process, I've been able to go a lot deeper and expose the root. And that's an awesome thing, even though it doesn't feel very awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Especially in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a lot of pain, a lot of deep pain, and it had been uncomforted for a long time. And it just had to keep getting louder and louder and louder to get uh, my attention. I like how you describe it. And you were saying how you knew that you don't have to share this perfectly because um, God knows what you went through. But I have a strong feeling that people that are listening right now have um, experienced anxiety or depression or a combination of the two um, many times before, whether they were aware of it or not. And so we're able to also empathize with one another of having gone through some type of anxiousness or some type of depression. Yours kind of hit like a pretty high, you know, place where you felt like, you know, you had to go to the ER and you had to go find other resources to help you. So that might be a little more extreme than the average person. But I think even, you know, hearing how many people are on medication, which medication is not a problem, just like the doctors were saying, it's a helper, but you also have to take care of the root issues. Um, But I think that there's a lot of people that struggle with it more than we realize. And you opening up the conversation to talk about it is so valuable because there's a lot of people not talking about it. And I think it's important to share. Well, and I want to kind of walk through the compassion method process and then add my add my real experience to it. So when we were doing the triggered and true landing page, I was challenged with how do you explain the compassion method, you know, short and sweet and succinctly, you know, and I boil it down to three words. And, and really these three words are how I experienced the compassion method. And, and these three words, it's not like you do one and then the other and then the next. It's like all three of these are happening at the same time. But um, so the, th- the first word is awareness. And I describe that as many suffer the consequences of emotional pain, such as anxiety, depression, and irritability, but are unaware that they are even hurting. Mm-hmm. The compassion method enables people to see their pain. And this allows the healing process to begin. So that describes me to a T. I had no mm-hmm. clue. Okay. Yeah. Awareness is a big deal. It's not healing, but it's part of the process of healing is awareness. Yep. So the next word is comfort. And I describe that as when our tooth is hurting, we know to go to the dentist. But what about when our heart is hurting? Taking care of emotional pain, taking care of our inner world is not something that many of us have been taught. This process teaches you how to apply compassion to your pain and also how to get your needs met. So that's the second word. And the third word is discovery. Because we are hurting, our behavior often doesn't match our identity. When our pain is running the show, we simply do not act like ourselves. I'll talk a little bit about not acting like myself. As our pain is comforted and as our needs are met, we can begin to discover who we truly are. So going to the first word, awareness. So the first 
my first exposure to Laura. So as I mentioned, I, I did a number of different attempts of like, I met with, I think two or three other people before I got to you, because as many of you that are listening probably know, Laura is not always the easiest to get into right away. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> yeah. And Laura is not always the easiest to get in to see. And I think my weight list, my weight was not quite two months, which is actually pretty good. Right. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Back then. So it was yeah. pretty good. So I didn't know that you had gone to um, multiple. I knew you'd seen that first person, but I didn't know you'd done multiple counselors, which is actually an important thing to do because you have to find people that fit with you and are doing a process that's actually going to benefit you. You don't always find that the first time. Yeah. And here's who I met with. Uh, one guy was a retired counselor and we just met kind of for coffee and kind of shot the bowl and and uh, he's a great guy. And then the next guy, and he was helpful. Um, he was one of the ones that when I first told him, I said, I've never struggled. I remember my wife and I were together. I think it was our first meeting with him and she joined me. And I said, I've never struggled with anxiety before. And he just started laughing. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> oh yeah, you have. Yeah. Right. I'm like, it was like one of my first times being like, oh, well, maybe this has been around a little while. All right. So that was that guy. And then I met with a guy that was more, you know, just more of a spiritual um, guide, so to speak. And that was, yeah, I learned a few things and it was, it was helpful. And then I met one time with this other guy and we won't even talk about him because that was weird. So yeah. And then finally got into, got into see Laura. And, but I think uh, like a week or so before I was able to have a one-on-one -on -one with you, you had a workshop. And the first workshop that I attended was the 10 gifts workshop. And something that really helped me right away was when you talked about brain science, because logic has kind of been my go-to. That's the part of my brain that's more developed, the left side of my brain, more developed. And you talking about the brain science and helping me understand what was going on when I had my anxiety attack, when I, you know, when the great awakening was at its peak, what was going on inside of me was really, really helpful. And I think that's kind of something you do a lot. That's kind of a place you start a lot. Um, yeah. And I, and I do, one of the main reasons I do is because even though stereotypically men are more logical, women are more emotional, um, just my upbringing, my process, how my brain works is I'm a lot more logical. And so I had a problem in the past before I started learning about the compassion method of it feeling like it was just emotional. And then people were just like, you just have to feel your emotions. And it just felt like it was like a dead end. Like you just had to be like stuck in it because it just felt like emotions were out of control and emotions were, you know, there was no clear road um, map to follow with emotions where logic felt a lot safer because it's a lot more clear. So I actually got the most awareness and then eventually healing from understanding the brain science personally as well. And then primarily when I first started meeting with people, it was almost all men. And so I was able to relate to them in that way. But I find that male or female, if we can un have understanding 
Um, it helps us get a base to be able to walk through the emotions we're going to walk through. And so the neuroscience of it is really important to understand. Otherwise, it feels like those triggers that are happening are like a wave just crashing on you and drowning you and you can't get out. You can't get above it. But the more we have understanding to go along with the process of discovery and healing, then we're able to actually pair our logical brain or left side of our brain with our right side of our brain, our emotions and have them work together. People, a lot of times when they're going through emotional things are really hard on logic. Like you just need to stop being so logical and just be emotional. But I don't believe that to be true. I believe that a lot of times we've been exercising one side of our brain more than the other. So in your case, you were exercising your logic. So you were really strong in it. And that's great. We just have to pair with it, your emotional right side of your brain and exercise that so we can be an equal with your logic. So we don't have to get rid of logic um, just because um, we're exploring emotion. They're meant to go together. Yeah. And for those that maybe haven't listened to a prior podcast where we've talked about this real quick, I'll just explain what I learned. Yeah. No, that's great. So what I love about how Laura presented it is she made it really simple and like elementary level. So like I could grasp it really fast, but essentially the primal part of my brain which is in the rear, the rear of my head, the rear of our heads. And it was firing on all cylinders. And that's where the fight or flight mechanism resides. The part that's to keep us alive when there's a wild animal chasing us or a burglar breaks into our house in the middle of the night or whatever. We don't want to think, we just want to act. And that was, that was kicked on. And that's a great part of our brain to have kick on when the house really is on fire, but it's not so great to have kick on like all the time. Like whenever somebody just yells, you know, whenever it just sees a little smoke in the air, just constantly coming on. And, uh, and when that comes on, it overrides our frontal part of our brain, which is where our logic is. And our frontal lobe is where all of our logic lives, our reasoning, our understanding, all these things that we go to school and we learn all these wonderful things. But when we're triggered, we don't, it's like, we can't, we can't open the book. Frontal lobe knowledge is shut down, turned off. It's shut. And one thing I'll just say real quick, just since we're talking about the neurological side of it. um, If you've experienced adrenal fatigue before, if you've, um, that comes from being in a constant state of fight or flight. So what it does is it's releasing into your system, adrenaline, like you're saying, just constantly. When there's no real danger, but there's a perceived danger because of the lack and pain that we experienced in our early childhood development, that perceived danger constantly has our body releasing adrenaline. So it's flooding our systems, causing big reactions, but also creating adrenal fatigue because we're, our, our adrenal glands were meant, not meant to produce that level of adrenaline on a constant basis. So if you find yourself in a a very habitual, constant state of trigger, that means that you're probably going to have physical health issues as well that are connected to it. So a lot of times when people are fatigued, tired, immune systems down, it's more emotional than it is actually physical. Well, and and leading into my, I didn't get into all this, but leading into my first panic attack, when I woke up that Sunday morning, I had gone through some very challenging situations in the family. And I had been, I, that adrenal fatigue, I totally was, I was lacking energy. I was so tired all the time. And 
um, you know, my body had really, so this had been wearing on me a while, you know, at mm-hmm. a heightened state. A lot of your defenses are down because the ways you managed it, you've been managing, like, just like the other counselor said, when you said I didn't experience anxiety, he laughed because he, he, everyone experiences anxiety. And, but if we're in a stronger state of mind or a stronger physically, a lot of times we can um, suppress it. But once we're no longer in that strong place because of previous circumstances you went through, it wore you down to a place where you couldn't manage it anymore, which at the moment was horrible. But in the bigger picture, it's so important to get to places where we're too weak to manage it so we can actually take care of it. We'll get to that when I talk about my protectors, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah. the second big piece of awareness, and this is when we met one-on-one that I really took this home was when you said to me that I wasn't broken. Well, that really spoke to my shame because I was like, there is something wrong with me. Like I'm not so much. It's like that. I am wrong. Not just that there's something wrong that I am wrong. Like who I am is wrong. And uh, that was very much. part of my childhood coding too, like what I felt when I was little, like I was, there was something wrong with me. And obviously you really helped me see that I wasn't broken, but really I was just hurting and who I was, was covered up just because I was hurting. Exactly. Because a lot of times when we struggle with mental, emotional, physical sicknesses or problems, we end up identifying them as who we are, but What's happening to your body, your mind, your heart is not who you are. Your pain is not who you are. And because from early childhood development, from an early age, we've um, experienced pain. And especially if we experienced a lot of pain or neglect, we end up identifying that's who we are. And so to recognizing you're not broken, but you didn't get what you needed. You're not broken, but you have experienced pain. You know, you're not broken, but we need to be able to care for and show compassion and nurture to those places so that you can be who you were created to be. Yeah. Well, and I still had a lot of shame about even just needing to come see you. Just the very fact that I'm there, you know what I'm saying? And feeling kind of silly, but yet, but I know how real the torment is because this torment, mm-hmm. this, that thought that was running me about the suicide yep. and, oh my God, is this going to happen to me? It's not like that just went away. No, that's still there. And that's you just became like, uncomfortable enough to face it. And I, and people, a lot of times will say, what do you think the primary reason why people come see you? And so I say, that's what I say. Yeah. People became uncomfortable enough with well, what was that, already there to take That thought is what made me uncomfortable. Like that thought had never been there before it's like it parachuted into my brain, you know, but it was like that thought really just was able to run me because it, it overwhelmed a couple of my protectors and I'll get to that in a second. But, um, but you said to me something that was so compassionate, what you said to me is you just said it was as bad as it felt. So I no longer had to try to justify why I need to go see you or I need to see anybody or I need to get help from anybody. It was like, no, if if it was truly as bad as it felt, I'm like, holy crap. It felt really bad. Yeah, exactly. And we like to minimize or compare our pain, but it was as bad as it felt to you. And we want to honor that, not minimize it or try to compare it. And really what, what this did subconsciously, when you said that, I don't, I, it's only now that I realize it, but even then subconsciously, 
this gave me permission to feel. It's like that statement gave me permission for the first time to allow myself to feel what was happening, to feel what was coming up. And as I mentioned in my intro, I looked at those kind of those big, uncomfortable emotions really as like the enemy. Like they're just bad. Mm -hmm. Get rid of them. Yep. Suppress them, ignore them, ignore them. They'll go away, push them down. It's a sign of weakness to acknowledge them. I even thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of villainizing of emotion, not understanding what their purpose is. Not seeing them as that the incredible gift that they Mm -hmm. are. They are just because we are less educated on emotions doesn't make emotions have any less purpose or less what they give us is, you know, without emotions, we would never be able to get to the heart of things. And then also you sharing that really what happened to you is they were trying to talk to you and they just had to keep getting louder and louder. <laughs> and they were screaming yep. and louder. Yep. Exactly. To, to get my attention. And yeah. by golly, they did get my mm-hmm. attention. Finally, they made me uncomfortable enough. They overwhelmed all my protectors. They overwhelmed all the things I had done to satiate them, to Mm -hmm. minimize them, to suppress them. They overwhelmed all of that Yeah. to the point where. Good job, emotions. (laughs) You did your job. (laughs) No, really, though, because it's really sad that emotions are trying to help us and assist us. And then we villainize them because they're uncomfortable and we don't have we're not educated in what they're meant to be, what the purpose is. And as we said, all of these things are going on at the same time. So, mm-hmm. so you're teaching me not also how to feel these emotions and let them come up. Yeah. You're helping give me a process of learning how to comfort them. Yeah, exactly. So that's what gave me confidence mm-hmm. to, yeah. to go there. Was there. A path. Yeah. there was a path. There was a path. Passion method brings a lot of hope to people, even myself included, because it's a path to know what to do with it. Yeah. And I'm not sure when I stumbled onto the, to this particular verse. And obviously, you know, the compassion method is for anybody. It's not just a a Christian process or anything like that. This is truly for anybody from any walk of life or persuasion, but myself, I'm a Christian. So when I was able to connect it to my faith, it was allowed me to take it, you know, like even to a deeper level. So around this time, I remember finding the verse Proverbs 4, 23, where it says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. And I just really feel like this whole process is learning to do just that, to take care of our heart. And truly it does determine the course of our life because our inner world impacts every decision we make, every interaction we have, everything we do. Is coming through there. Is coming from there. All right. Now, another big part of the awareness was identifying the root. Like, okay, so I have this pain, and as adults, you know, we're adults now. I'm an adult now. Logically, you're thinking that the pain is like something in your recent, like what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And you had know? mentioned that you had a couple other, you know, yeah. things going on in your life at the time that you could have justifiably felt like was the source. Yeah. But I think even deep down, I knew they weren't, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't even remember spending a lot of time talking about them, mm-hmm. but typically that's what, that's what we do. Yeah. We think, well, it's, you know, my spouse did this, this happened, that happened at work or whatever. 
But in many ways, those are just paper tigers. They're mm-hmm. not the real, they're not the real issue. They're an issue. They're significant. They matter, but they're not yeah. the root. They keep us distracted. They keep us avoiding our pain, but they're definitely not the root of it. So to get to the root, I had to go to childhood. And you slowly took me there. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously we've talked about this, like the first six months that I saw you, it was all defensive. So we're all defensive. We're all, you know, just, you know, um, you know, the, the enemy is sieging the, uh, sieging all the defenses and they're pouring into the city and you've got to be very defensive. You're locked in a little room, just trying to fight your way out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm picturing like Lord of the Rings or something in my mind right now. And <laughs> yeah. So at first, you know, the, the city's being overwhelmed and it appears all hope is lost, but um, you're slowly chipping away at that to get to the point where, you know, you gain enough ground that you can, that you can flip and go, go on the offensive. And I was really able to get to spend some time there. And I'm going to share, I'm just going to jump right to it and share what I see as the root. And people will be like, Oh, you got there that fast. No, I didn't get there that fast. It was like <laughs> time. time remember, lapse. We're jumping around a little bit too. You <laughs> yeah, know, this totally. is like, maybe this was like at year two, you know, yeah. of like processing <laughs> before I really got to where the root of that pain was, but really, you know, looking back at my childhood, it's kind of tough because in so many ways, my, my childhood was wonderful. I have wonderful parents. They provided for me. They, they did so many things for me. I had the wonderful opportunity and privilege to grow up on a farm, which is like so cool. And I got to do things at such a young age that, you know, most people, you know, maybe never get to do. And looking back at my childhood, I can see how clearly, you know, I can honor my parents for what they were able to do and, and recognize, you know, what also what they weren't able to do, but what they were able to do is they raised me incredibly well in the logistics of life. You know, I think I had my first checkbook at 12 years old. I have basically a business enterprise at that age. I turned 16 I wrote a check for my first, a, a gently used vehicle. I wrote a check for $6,500, which is, I looked that up. It's like 13 grand today. I didn't borrow any money. I just wrote a check. Yep. Um, you, had, you were really well trained and taught and how to be successful in life. Absolutely. I mean, entrepreneurship was just in my, in my bones. So like when I got out of college and when I went to go work for someone, I worked out in the field and I remember taking a tour of the corporate office. And I'm like, there is no way I am ever, ever going to be able to work in a cubicle. It's just not going to happen, you know? So I had to, you know, just that desire to start our own business, you know, was there and my wife and I did that. And so much of that I owed to my upbringing. It's the way yeah. I was raised. You know, I was raised yeah, to be you successful. You really honor your parents and even in this moment or throughout the process, say, thank you so much, mom and dad, for giving that to me. Cause that's a true gift. Absolutely. And, and the other thing, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, if we divide our brain into hemispheres, there's a left brain and right brain, which is I'm sure wildly over simplistic way to look it at is. your brain. There's so much more to it, but I know, still it helps but, us get it in a simple form, which I feel like it's better to start simple and get more complicated than to start yeah. so complicated. You can't understand it. So left brain, logic and reason, right brain, your emotional side, um, the arts, 
you know, things like that. Whereas um, creativity. So I was, I was parented very much, you know, in that, that left brain became very developed and the way I was parented, the right brain, not so much, you know, that was the part that my parents weren't able to provide. And um, looking back at like where that root of that pain was when I was, when I was younger, I was very, I was very, very late in maturing. I was very little. And, you know, one kind of mile marker that sticks out of my head was my freshman year of high school. I was about 410, weighed about 93 pounds. I mean, I was tiny. I mean, there might've been a girl in the high school. I was the same height as, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's real bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a brother that thing. was, yeah. he was in eighth grade and same thing for 11. Yeah. 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 It's hard. I was just a little, and, and really when I mentioned earlier, I felt like there was something wrong with me. I developed a thought process when I was little that there really was like somehow I was just less than I was made less than like, I wasn't really a man, you know? And, um, and when I look back at childhood, this was like an overwhelming thing and a constant source of shame, embarrassment, just that I don't measure up. I'm not a real man. And, you know, that just gets compounded when, you know, puberty sets on and these other kids are like two, three years ahead of you, but you're the same age. And it just, um, you know, you know, and I even looked at like my dad, I looked at my dad as the picture of a man, he was big and strong and I felt little and scrawny. And then we'd be out working on the farm and, you know, granted, I'm probably like 10 and he's, you know, an adult, but there's like things he could do and I just couldn't do it. And I just felt weak and pathetic and just like, I wasn't enough. And, um, and then when it comes to like, you know, being bullied and things like that, I mean, bullies can kind of smell blood in the water. So you have someone that doesn't have confidence in themselves, doesn't believe in themselves. Well, yeah. So you're kind of just prime, prime pickings for, for those types. And uh, so there was some of that obviously as well. And that just, you know, is not the cause of the pain. It just reinforces it the pain. Reinforced it. It compounded the pain. It agreed with your inner belief system about yourself. And that's what made it so painful. If you didn't believe it was true, bully came around and bullied you. It wouldn't have landed so hard, but it hurt when it landed because there was already a wound there. Yeah. So what I was able to recognize is that it wasn't so much that that happened and that I felt that way. It was that I was alone with it. I didn't, I was not able to connect with my parents around that issue in any meaningful way. And the kind of that emotional side, I mean, we, we just, there wasn't hugging, there wasn't, there just wasn't any of that. So what really made it hard and probably made that pain sink really, really deep was that I was alone with it. I didn't talk to anybody about it. I was ashamed to, I was embarrassed. I would never admit it. You know, I remember one time kind of trying to talk to my mom about it and it just didn't go real well. And I'm just like, I'm not doing that again, you know, and And I got a hunch that, you know, people can relate to that. 
I mean, there's just things that as kids, we, you just felt ashamed or embarrassed about. You weren't able to talk to other people about it. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, we've come so far in emotional intelligence and emotional awareness that our parents just had no idea. There was no manual. There was not a lot of books at the time, not saying that nothing was available, but it wasn't common to be emotionally intelligent. Well, and if you think about it, this is a generational thing. I mean, it was, um, my, my parents have a very proud German Lutheran heritage and by golly, they worked. That's what we did. (laughs) We worked. And their parents did and their parents did. And so that's what success looked like. And they did it really well. Well, and along this way, you know, in being able to see what I was able to receive from my parents and what I wasn't able to receive from my parents, it's also a very sobering look at, you know, with my own children. Yeah, you know, and recognizing and having to grieve what I was not able to give them, mm-hmm. and um, kind of work through this process. And um, so, you know, there's no villains. You know, there's no villains. No, it's there's just, not. People are just doing the, like you're doing the best, best you can. Yep. Yeah, your parents did the best they could. There is no villains. Villains yep. will keep you in blame, and blame will keep you avoiding your pain. When we recognize there's no villains, but we can do an honest inventory of what we received or didn't receive, then we can begin the process of being able to actually get what we didn't have. But if you stay blaming and you stay villainizing, you they'll always be the bad parents and you'll always be the good parent, you know, exactly. And that's what a lot of our generation does is they say, I never want to be like them because of now what I've been educated in and I've learned. And so I'm going to be something different. But it's impossible to be something different until your coding has changed. And your coding can only be changed by actually acknowledging your lack and your pain. That's even though your parents needed to give that to you in your early childhood development as adults now, they're 100% not the problem. Yeah, I, you know, I agree. I mean, spot on. So how did I take care of myself? So I wasn't, if I wasn't able to talk to anybody about this, what did I do? So I've, I really, because as I was preparing for this, I really identified four major protectors. And um, as I, before I share about protectors, why don't you just give a little background, Laura, as to what a protector is? So we did another podcast on protectors. So if you really want to get into detail with it, I definitely recommend that because we all have our protectors and a lot of them can actually seem like really good things, even though they're actually hurting us because they're protecting us from love. And so um, protectors are ultimately anything we use to keep us from facing our pain, whether that's blame, whether that's getting better, whether that's uh, medicating, whether that's trying to find an external source to meet an internal wound. Is there anything that we're doing to protect ourselves from dealing with that pain? But protectors get a really bad rap because people will be like, oh, you're, you know, you just have a protector. You need to just stop doing that. You need to let it down or you need to, you know, not be so protective. But I am a firm believer that those protectors were the best that we could do at the time. And they actually helped us and served us for what we knew. And so we're not just going to rip them away. We're actually going to be able to explore why we needed them and then get our need met so we can let them go without trying to rip them from our grip. Well, so I looked at my protectors and, and looking back and this is kind of like you said, they were my medicine. They mm-hmm. were how I took care of myself when I did. We were really know. proud of little you. Yeah. It was really brave of you to try to find something to help you when you didn't know what to do. Yeah. 
And in doing this, we're going to talk about why that fear of suicide was so was so overwhelming because why that particular thought or fear was so able to overwhelm my protectors. So I was already in a vulnerable spot. So my protectors were already like the dam starting to break, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're like the little boy with the, the, yeah. the this finger yeah, in the dam, yeah, you know, foot, it's like another one keeps popping open, you know, but uh, the very first one I would say was rooted in performance. So I, this overwhelming feeling of not feeling like I was enough, I was going to perform my way through that. So I had to pretend a lot. But then I also had to like perform. So for me, I wasn't able to do this in sports so much because I was so little. I mean, I literally was like a a boy with playing amongst men, you know, in those ages, you know. And so I wasn't really able to do it, you know, through sports or whatever in performance, but I could do it academically. So I could perform there and I could get good grades and I could do all those things. And on the farm, academically on the farm. Yeah. And work. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. so important to me, so important to me that people recognize me as a hard worker. Well, even that you saved up that much money and that's what I'm talking about. Some protectors are, they look really good. Like the average parent hearing that is like, wow, your parents did a really great job. You saved up the money, you started a business, you were very successful, but a lot of that was connected to performance and the franticness and not being enough that motivated you in, in a, great way because it's always kind of both going on at the same time motivated you in a great way but it also kept you from taking care of your pain because you put all your energy and focus and being successful but not actually taking care of the franticness that was causing you to go in that direction yeah it covered it up yeah because it looks really great i mean how many people listening if you're a parent and you had a 16 year old kid that pays cash for his car you know i mean like you would be like yeah did something right and they did and you did too, but there's more to the story. So that, that need to always be working. Like I always had to be doing like idle time was just what's well, idle times, the devil's time or whatever. But I mean, <laughs> I just, I just couldn't, yeah. I just couldn't stop. I You're just driven. couldn't, I couldn't, yeah. I could, I was very driven. Yes. Very driven. And, um, uh, and it also kind of manifests an over responsibility. I mean, I would take responsibility for things at a young age that I had no business taking responsibility mm-hmm. for you know? And, um, so yeah, whether that was in academics, the marketplace, you know, later on in my life, it was the church world, religious yep. activity, That's always a doing popular one. Yes. Oh yeah. They'll keep you going. <laughs> it's all about doing whatever we're drawn. When we have the unmet need of the gift of not feeling enough, if we haven't received it, we are going to find places that are going to let us do for us to feel valuable, to feel like we're enough. And the church work. Those are some of the primary places that people find that if they do, they can be loved mm-hmm. or they can feel like they'll be loved. The second one for me, you know, looking back of the four categories of protectors was, uh, was alcohol. And I, I first started experimenting with alcohol. I mean, I, a little bit in junior high, a little bit my freshman year, but my sophomore year, it was pretty of high school. It was pretty much game on. I mean, it was, it was a several nights a week thing and drinking and the, the release that came with that. But, but even just the act of doing it made me feel like I fit in with the group I was with, made me feel like I was enough was something I could get good at 
if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could yeah. get good at this. You could have an even playing ground with connecting to people. If you could drink and they're drinking, now you're equals. You could put being shorter, or smaller aside. You could put not feeling like you really fit in aside. And then in that moment, you felt like you fit. Yeah. I felt like I fit in. Right. Absolutely. So peer pressure in general, you know, and especially in that area of alcohol. So, so play and letting loose was hard, but man, when I drank, it could help. I mean, I was a fun drunk. I had fun and, um, it really helped me a lot. Um, unfortunately it comes with some obvious side effects. And, you know, one of the things that I look back on that is definitely a source of shame, but, but at the same time, I'm so unbelievably thankful. I think of how many times I drank and drove and like, and just by God's grace that I never had an accident. I never hurt anybody, but wow. You know, I look back at it and you know, the drinking, you know, when I got to, when I got to college, you know, my mom was really worried because the drinking had gotten to be where, you know, I eventually couldn't hide it. You know, they, they were catching on to what was going on. I mean, I, I was 16. I had my driver's license for 45 days. I got caught drinking. I lost my driver's license, you know? So I was like, that's so horrible. I was like the most miserable experience. You know, it's like you wait so long to get your license and then you get it and then it's gone. <laughs> So I had that. And then my senior year of high school, I had a couple instances that were, that were not good. And uh, my mom legitimately did not know if I would make it in college. She's Mm -hmm. like, he's going to get to college and he's just going to, this drinking thing is going to really go crazy. Well, also keep in mind though, that my other protector is performance. So I need Mm -hmm. to perform well academically and I need to do this. Create a little bit of tension there. Yeah, it did. I, I guess a healthy tension, I guess, but, um, uh, it got really bad, but in college, you know, I, I, um, you know, I don't, I probably drank less to be honest, um, until it came to my junior year of college, probably the drinking for me hit ahead there where it was, it was every night of the week, but one. And basically I had to drink, you know, at least a six pack to fall asleep And the night that I didn't drink, which was Sunday night. And then eventually I started going out that night too. I'd take sleeping pills, go to sleep. Cause I just couldn't get, and I pulled a 4-0 my junior year. I mean, I, I was able to balance, balance it. And I've, I've since learned about alcoholism that there's definitely functioning alcoholics. And I guess that's what I was. And um, so, but luckily uh, my senior year of, of college, I adapted a new protector. And this one was so much better in many ways because that protector was exercise. I started working out my senior year of college and that working out brought me a tremendous amount of regulation. I no longer needed to drink to fall asleep. I could just fall asleep. I no longer need sleeping pills, any of that stuff. I could just fall asleep. You'd be functioning even better in your protectors. <laughs> yep. So the perfect cocktail, you know, the perfect recipe of putting all your protectors together to be able to have them all work well. <laughs> you know, and I didn't, I didn't quit drinking, but I didn't drink as much. I wasn't, I was going out like, and I started to think about things like calories and, you know, like, you know, I started watching what I was eating. I used to just eat, you know, I'd go to the student union, McDonald's, whatever. 
I haven't eaten McDonald's since my senior year of college, you know? Um, so things changed and, um, you so got anyway, better. I, I got better. <laughs> I, just, I adapted another protector, but yes, you did. Damn. It was a better one. Cause it regulated me in a much healthier way, you know, and eventually, um, I quit drinking in, uh, September of 2006. And that was something that I very felt very much led by God to do. And, um, and when I was going through all of this, you know, the great awakening period, I actually did go see, cause I didn't want to keep doing medication. You and I talked a lot about that. So I didn't want to go on like a full-time medication. I was very reluctant to do that just because of my health stuff. Like I was a health kind of a health geek, you know, so like pharmaceuticals aren't really what I want to be turning to for health. So I was seeing like a holistic doctor and she was looking at my blood work and stuff. And I had known I had this liver condition, but the medical community never really said like it was that big a deal, but to her, it was a really big deal. And she said to me, she said, you know, if you drink, you should probably never drink again. And I'm like, you know what? I knocked that one out about 12 years ago. So you don't got to worry about that one. So anyway, um, but what, when I quit drinking though, what I really did was replaced, um, a lot of that with religious activity. So, so my, yeah, my drinking and cruising and all that stuff that went with that, unfortunately, you know, that was like R rated. So I just really, I just replaced kind of that protector with a PG version and it became religious activity and missionary trips and preaching and teaching and all of these things, you know, that kind of did that. So, so one of the things that early on that you told me, or it wasn't super early on, but a couple months in, you know, you talked about how you could see my protectors. You could see the things that I was doing to take care of myself. But you said that when I was on that defensive stage that you couldn't remove them or you didn't want to tear them down. Um, why don't you just speak a little bit to that and not trying to remove those protectors before you're ready. And then maybe even speak to what if those protectors are something that's illegal or illicit, or, you know, is really harming somebody else, you know, maybe speak mm-hmm. a little bit to that too. Well, obviously we can say, especially in that context that you just shared that, you know, we shouldn't do those things and we should, you know, help people, you know, not do those things and then they'll be healthy. And even in more extreme behaviors like that, I still believe the most sustainable long-term, even for illegal things, even for things that are the really big, bad protectors, it's still going to be the same process. Temporarily, we can put boundaries in place of not doing certain things. But if you only put a boundary in place on your protectors, but you don't actually take care of the need behind the protectors, they will always come back. You might replace them with different ones like you did, but you were still just as anxious, just as feeling your pain and not being able to take care of it, even though you were drinking and driving, which is illegal. And so being able to recognize, so we could come in hot and say, don't ever do the, if you were still doing it, we could say, don't, don't do that, which of course don't do that. Um, But there's a reason behind it that has to be taken care of. A lot of times, because we're more behavior motivated than um, getting to the actual the roots of behavior, if the behavior is taken care of, we're good. 
but we actually want to take care of the pain behind the behavior because we'll just keep modifying it and keep getting new protectors until we actually take care of why we're protecting ourselves in the first place. So to come in again and just rip those from you, one, you don't have understanding for it. Two, you, you're going to find another one anyways. And three, we're really going down the wrong pathway to try to behavior management when this is not why you're protecting yourself in the first place. Yeah. And that behavior management really is where most people live. They never get beyond that. They never get deeper than that. With protectors, there's so much shame connected to them too. There's so much shame connected to protectors that people are just trying to get rid of them because they're bad. And I really try not to uh, shame protectors because the more we shame them, the less we're actually going to explore and discover what's behind. And as I, as I mentioned too, I wanted to kind of share like why that particular, the, the thought that overwhelmed all of my protectors, the thought of suicide that just absolutely ran me into the ground. It overwhelmed my, it overwhelmed me so much because it really took out two of my protectors. I mean, it took them out cold. And one of them was the area of performance because I felt like such a failure to be going through these panic attacks, anxiety to begin with. Like, I felt like I'm doing something wrong. I suck. This should not be happening to me. So I'm, I'm already like weak in that area of performance. And then that thought comes in and in my mind, very ignorantly, I looked at suicide as the ultimate failure, like the ultimate way to fail at life and to let everybody down, including God, protector number two, religion, because now I'm going to fail it. I'm going to fail all of my family. I'm going to fail my friends. I'm going to fail my work. And I mean, these would be the images that would constantly be going through my mind. Like what would people think if he did such a thing? What would you know, and then your kids, you just left your kids hanging and all that stuff, you know? Um, and then God, the, I fail God and tons of misunderstanding uh, in the church world and everywhere, you know, about what suicide really is, which is, it's just someone that's hurting really damn bad. And it's the ultimate flight. You know, and, and it's um, made with the amygdala, the that choice or decision is made with the amygdala, which is our fight or flight that doesn't have a sophisticated brain to it. And so it doesn't understand finality. It doesn't understand time. It doesn't understand the bigger picture. So that's why it's so critical to not just tell people don't commit suicide, but to actually take care of the amygdala that's causing us to irrationally choose a way of trying to flight to get out of our situation. So it's not just preventing, it's educating as well. Yeah. And um, I, I knew something was weird though, because I knew that there was what I, what I knew was weird is that I was like, I had never even thought of that until I heard that podcast. So it was almost like, there's like something more going on than just that. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, um, if that makes any sense at all, I'm not sure if it does, but so basically that thought overwhelmed those protectors, but it also went back to that early childhood development because 
for a thought like that to even enter one's mind, there's a huge lack of value for yourself. There's a huge lack of self-worth. There's a huge lack of love for yourself. And if you go back to my early, my early childhood development, that thought that there's something wrong with me, that I'm inferior. I mean, I was not kind to myself. I mean, I was really hard on myself over something that is so stupid because like you can control any of that. You know what I'm saying? So I was so hard on myself and thought there was just so, so much that there was something wrong with me that it relaxed in such a lack of self-worth value for myself, acceptance for myself. And then that's the part where my parents weren't able to connect with me in that area and in that way to help comfort that pain when I was little. But as we're learning, just because it didn't happen then doesn't mean it can't happen. Because we can go back and that little me can get, that little boy can get, get those things met that he, that weren't met. That pain can get comforted in that little spot. But yeah, so that's kind of why that, that thought so, so overwhelmed me. So, so looking at kind of some of the, the areas of comfort, learning to provide comfort, you know, you talk about this a lot. You talk about, we can learn to be okay, even when it's not okay all around us. And I remember how much hope that would give me because I recognized with that performance and that hyper over responsibility, like how much energy I expended trying to get my external world in order so that inside I could be okay. And how, just how fruitless that was. Cause it's like, and and what a hopelessness that produced inside of me as well. That you you can't do it. better than average. And you, you know, if you looked at your life, there's so many check the boxes of success, but you knew deep inside that no matter how good you did everything in your life, it would never be enough Mm-mm. because no matter how perfect we are, bad things happen. No matter how much we perform, bad things happen. And being able to recognize that you're not going to get through it by becoming more and more successful. You're going to get through it by being able to recognize your pain. So in, in learning how to apply comfort, obviously the remote control exercise, huge, you know, pausing that triggering event yep. and just, okay, we're going to just set that aside and we're going to put that over on a shelf. We'll come back yep. to it. Yeah. I know. Usually it, we don't even need to. With, with that hopelessness or helplessness or whatever you're feeling in that triggered state that causes us to make decisions that are, you know, contrary to taking care of ourselves, being able to recognize that pause. I mean, that would be one of the number one things that I would want people to start with is just to be able to pause. Everything feels so big and so overwhelming. It's so out of control and so hopeless and so helpless. When we do that pause, we're able to start to get to the wound behind it, which, which helps us have that sophisticated brain being able to make decisions, not just our amygdala. Mm-hmm. And you helping me see that it really boiled down to like these big, crazy emotions that I, that are just like uncontrollable. And actually those big emotions I experienced kind of felt like bullies. Like mm. they were the bullies. That's they a were, good the, way to they were now the yeah. ones pushing me around mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm helpless or whatever. But when you helped me see that those big, scary things that were just seemed larger than life really just boiled down to one of three soft emotions you're sad, you're scared, you're lonely. And when those little 
emotions aren't well taken care of, they grow up to be big, ugly monsters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And they feel very real, but it's really smoke and mirrors in a lot of ways because there's no substance to our big reactions because behind it, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, Wizard of Oz, how that got like that little man behind the curtain was making this big thing happen. That's such a picture of what our sadness, our scared or lonely is creating this big production that feels so real and so true, but really it's just a trigger. It's just a reaction. It's not what's really behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those thoughts I was having were just absolutely bigger than life. And that helped me get really little with it and Mm -hmm. get, and get to see that it was a little, it was a little, it was coming Mm -hmm. from little me. You know? Yep, exactly. And then very um, common to how kids react. It probably should be no surprise that one of the compassion statements that has resounded with me the most always is I see you trying so hard. <laughs> yeah. Because you're a little, that little performance from a very button. young age. Yeah. yeah Which comes from a beautiful place too. But then whatever we're usually do better at in life, that becomes our protector because we feel safe in it. So it's we can still acknowledge that you did a, you know, you wanted to succeed, you wanted to do well, you wanted to help people, you wanted to please people. There's a there's a really great heart behind all that. It's just when it becomes that all of those things lead to the neglect of your own self that's when we start in that neglected place to start to have reactions and manifestations that are not lining up with trying to be such a good person and perform so well. Well, and then the next step of the remote control, learning to identify needs. And I'm going to, I loved how you are. I love how you in the compassion method, have them look at gifts, their gifts, needs. I don't know. Just, it seems like less, more of a negative word. Whereas gifts is such more of a positive word. And, um, but it really makes sense because they're things that you're meant to be given. Yeah. Meant to be given. Exactly. So we can see the defensive deficit of need, but not recognizing that we were meant to naturally receive those things as a gift to us from our parents. And when we didn't receive it, the byproduct is unmet need, which is feels can feel painful, dark, unknown. Yeah. And I just want to read those quick as I, I'm going to share a couple of personal examples, but they are um, seen, heard, protected, valued, enough, provided for, accepted, play, taught, and affection. And finding where I've experienced those in life has been a fun little treasure hunt and um, probably uh some of the places where I've found the most, you know, looking back, even at childhood, like I didn't recognize they were there in childhood, but they were, they just weren't coming from maybe mom and dad or, or because I had pain there, I couldn't see them coming from mom and dad, but I could see them coming other places, but I couldn't at the time. Cause you know, you're hardwired to see it from mom and dad, but I could definitely see um, my mom had me very involved in 4-H when I was little and um, some of it was, was definitely her doing, there was a lot of things that I did that if she went to sign me up for, I never would have done. And when I was sharing some of this with her, um, I told her, I said, looking back, I mean, some of the greatest experiences I had with people as a kid was through 4-H. And for those that are unfamiliar, 4-H is, is kind of like, uh, 
like a club for farm kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the yeah. best way to describe I did it. You know? <laughs> it's kind of like uh, boy scouts for farm kids or something like that, or girl scouts for farm <laughs> kids. But, um, but yeah, so you have projects and things like that. But anyway, so some of my greatest encounters with people were, were through that. And, you know, I mentioned this area of being accepted, you know, one I wanted to share was, um, when I was in 4-H, there was these um, two brothers that were from a neighboring town. They were my age, that we were in the same grade. But these guys were the quintessential men. You know, they were 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, I think they were twins. If they weren't twins, they were like a year apart. Um, one of them's name was Gary and one of them's name was Beefy. And uh, they were just big guys and they were athletic. They were handsome. They were, you know everything that I would want to be as a man, you know what I'm saying? But interestingly, I never felt intimidated, insecure, or anything around these guys. They um, just, I felt so accepted. I didn't have to drink. I didn't have to do stupid crap. I could just be me. And I remember as we were mining through, like, where have I felt acceptance before? I mean, these guys came to mind and the one brother in particular, like, yeah, I could just be me. And I felt so accepted. And, um, you know, I'm so thankful. And it's so interesting. It came from, it came from two guys that ordinarily I would be so intimidated by because mm -hmm. they're like everything a man's supposed to be. And I'm not, you but know, it was their presence. It was their yeah. essence. It was who they were that they were able to give to you that showed you that it could come in a different form. And I was able to receive. Yeah. And also mining through, I have a, an aunt and uncle that I was not particularly close to when I was little, just because ge geographically they lived a long, long ways away. And then as an adult, uh, I was able to get more connected with them. And um, yeah, so many 10 gifts experiences there. It's just uh, a real treasure trove. So that's been awesome too. But just going through my list, I look, I just made kind of a list. Where have I found these experiences? You know, where have I mined these out? I, I recognize an old boss. Um, who's unfortunately no longer, no longer with us, but just a tremendous man, uh, a pastor, uh, several pastors, my high school English teacher, a random lady from church, some guy I met on the beach, um, you know, just to name a few, you know, uh, friends, you know, um, and really it's just having the eyes to see in this this process gave me the eyes to see and kind of where I am today. You know, if I look at kind of where I am today, I'm still really learning in the area of play and um, play has been a really hard one for me. And the, another big one is just in the area of connection in general. So what I recognized was when I was little that, you know, kind of raised in that left brain, not so much in the right, that area of emotional connection with other people, attachment. Yeah, that, that just didn't happen in early childhood development to the degree that, you know, would have been ideal. So, and I'm recognizing like even in marriage, how, how I, just because I have insecurities there, there's pain there how I, I lean away from that. And it doesn't really, that's not great for a marriage, you know? So it's, um, 
So learning, learning to comfort that and learning and learning more behind that is, is obviously going to help me a tremendous amount in life in my own heart, but also be very profound for marriage and relationships in general, because I recognize it's, I would tend to not get particularly close with people, mm-hmm. you know, unless I was drinking, because then it was easier to get close. Yeah. Right. I didn't know how. Yeah. 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 Um, and then lastly, discovery. Uh, probably the best icebreaker for me and what I would recommend to anybody that's embarking on this journey to relatively quickly do is Laura's childhood, what she calls the childhood picture project. Um, that was such a huge icebreaker because I was so disconnected from that little me. You know, it took me so long to stare at that little picture of myself, that childhood picture of myself before I even realized it's me. And it's still me. It's not like that was me. Mm-hmm. That is me and still yeah. is me, you know? Yep. So. No, it's a great place to start. Cause that's where we, that's where it all begun is when we were little. And that's where we need to go back to in order to rewire and do recoding. Yeah. And the other one, the other exercise that I highly recommend to people is the, how am I seen? And um, where you basically share a, a list of descriptive words with, with, people in your life and you have them pick a word that describes you. And then does it have them explain why they picked it? I always have them explain why, just because we all have different interpretations of a word. So you might say like, Oh, that word doesn't describe me, but when you hear the why it does. So, and you only want them to pick one word, right? Yeah. One word out of this entire list, right? Yeah. But it's so funny. Everyone always like picks more, makes their own words up. You know, some people can't do it. It's very interesting, not just as the receiver of it, but also to see how people give. Well, one of the ones that came back, um, came back for me that was enlightening was someone picked the word kind, and then they shared an experience that they had where they received, you know, and felt my kindness. And, um, part of my, in my pain and kind of, you know, part of the way that I would, um, you know, when I was triggered, my triggered behavior would be to be very grumpy and be very irritable. Well, when you're grumpy and irritable, you are not kind. That's very hard to be kind when you're grumpy. So I came to think that, you know, I'm a grumpy person and, um, and I'm not any fun and, you know, not kind to go along with that to the, to the point where, um, at one point my family described me with the, with the very loving term, they called me the fun sucker because when I walked in a room, I sucked all the fun out of it. (laughs) So, (laughs) so there's the grumpy irritability, you know, but, but actually, um, when that, that person who was a former employee of mine, when he shared that with me, it was very, it was very encouraging because I was able to recognize. And from that, you taught me to develop a script and a script using those words that could help bring you back to yourself. So one of the words that I actually picked out too for myself was the word sweet, which not many people I think would pick that word as an adult, especially when I'm in my triggered behavior. But I know that when I was a kid, I was, and, um, and I know that that's part of who I am. So when I find myself in that triggered state, going back to, no, no. You can remind yourself of those yeah. words that you know to be true, even though they don't feel like it when you're triggered. And when we shared the 10 gifts, I actually gave an experience. Uh, I'll just give a lead, lead in to encourage you to go back and look at that one, but listen to that one where I talked about a time when I was not very kind to a salesperson over the phone. 
and um, recognize that I was not being kind, but then also connecting with, but that's who I am. And when I called back to apologize, I wasn't, I was apologizing differently than I would have been in the past. I, I apologized for what I did in the past. I would have been apologizing for who I was. Exactly. So I would have thought I was unkind, as the unkind grumpy yeah. person is your identity, not just a reaction to your pain. And as you learn to see your um, self correctly and see your true self, um, the fun thing is too, you also learn to see others true self mm-hmm. and you're yeah. able to oh. see, oh, they're yeah. triggered. That's not mm-hmm. who they really are. They're true. And one of the, one of the things that I, I told my wife not too long ago, I said, it's really cool because now when you're upset, I don't see you so much as the raging B word, <laughs> <laughs> but what I can see is a scared little girl. You know, I didn't share that with her when she was triggered, but yeah, that might not have got over very well, but it is important to see because we start seeing not just as much as we see our own personal identity distorted by believing what we do is who we are. We usually see our spouse in the same way. And so we start to believe that their identity and who they are is how they're acting. And then that causes us to want to disconnect, not just from what they're doing, but also from them. And it great, creates a higher level of intimacy when you can see past behavior and be able to see the person. Yeah, very good. Well, to kind of wrap up today, I just wanted to share um, a conclusion. And then you probably have something you want to say too, Laura. But um, I'm just wanting to share the, a verse that is special to me um, that I think encapsulates a lot of what we are trying to help ourselves do with the Compassion Method. John 15, nine from the Passion Translation says, I love each of you with the same love that the Father loves me. You must continually let my love nourish your hearts. It's kind of weird to think that we have to learn to let people love us. Yeah. But in our pain, we push love away. Exactly. And especially if we didn't experience in early childhood development, love can be as offensive as abuse. Yeah. So we push it away from, we don't give it to ourselves. We don't let our family do it. We don't let our friends in. And ultimately we don't let God in either. So what's wonderful about the compassion method is it empowers us. It's like builds our love capacity. It's like empowering us. It's like laying the scaffolding to like, let the love come in. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's like, yeah, the pipeline. Yeah, I love that about it too. Yeah. Yeah. breaks down all that resistance and allows it to flow first for ourselves and then for others. And as I said, in my introduction, I said that pain blocks our view of ourselves. So we see like, I'm grumpy, I'm unkind, you know, mm-hmm. you think that's who you are. So it blocks our view of ourselves, lots of shame and all that other stuff. But when you truly can learn to discover what's underneath all of that, you can't help but to love what you find. Mm-hmm. Even if we're acting contrary, you still see who you are. And so you end up loving yourself, even in your weakest moments. Absolutely. To know yourself is to love yourself. Yeah. So I guess how I'd wrap it up is my encouragement for those on this journey. You know, that's, that's the benefit of the compassion method. It's for you. Yeah. And the side benefit, it's going to help all those around you, Mm -hmm. but, but the real benefit is, is it's going to help you be you. Yep. And it's going to help you learn to love and learn to appreciate so much more about life. You know, I think before, before 
I learned the compassion method. I would believe by faith that um, I could be okay when it's not okay mm-hmm. all around me. Yeah. Like intellectually. Theory, like, well, yeah. Yeah. It's a great theory. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. buy it. I'll buy yep. it. But my heart was like, hell no. And there's mm-hmm. no way. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel true. There's because no way. The rejection we feel, the lack of acceptance, all the things that are actually going on inside of us that get there's, reinforced by our external world. There's no way. But now I, I'm like, yeah, actually, no, my heart can believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it doesn't live at all time. Like I said, I'm stumbling and bumbling through this a lot. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But it's but a, you're getting it's a your core in place. You're knowing yeah. that you know that you do love yourself, even if you can't always figure it out. You can't always see it. You're starting to like, like, and know what you see there, and learning to love yourself unconditionally. Yeah. So we went kind of long today, um, but we really appreciate everybody kind of hanging in with us. Um, Laura, do you have anything you want to add in conclusion? Just real quick, just first, thank you, Brian, for sharing your story. Every time someone shares their story, it's a vulnerable moment and it's um, just a real gift to all of us listening. So thank you. And then also um, we kind of covered a couple tender topics, vulnerable topics, some big topics today. And so it's okay if things triggered you along the way. It's okay if some of it got a little too close to home and what Brian was sharing. Um, Just be able to take care of yourself, go back to the remote control exercise. And even if you can't walk through it or process it, what I would want for you is just to be able to bring compassion to your heart and be able to show yourself love because, you know, this is when we, when we're talking about these real issues, it can bring up a lot in the person listening as well. So thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of Triggered and True. And if you like what you're here, refer it to a friend. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Triggered and True. We hope that you enjoyed it. As a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, go to triggeredandtrue.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click ask. And if you would like to learn more about the Compassion Method, be sure to check out the Compassion Method Master Course, which can be purchased at compassionmethod.net. And as a podcast listener, you qualify for a $50 discount, which can be obtained by typing in the coupon code PODCAST50. Again, that's compassionmethod.net, coupon code PODCAST50. Thank you again. Goodbye.